Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. I'm Susie Dean. Little Susie, the star of tomorrow or the day after? (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to episode 43 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk about Soho and the films that are set there. My name is Dominic Delaghi, and I hope you had a good summer. Mine was quite hectic, so not much recording, writing or podcasting got done. But now that the schools are open, well, those schools that weren't made of aero bars anyway, I finally have time to return to Soho Bites. Now, as you might imagine, I spend a fair amount of time reading about Soho online. Its famous former residence, its infamous incidents, its history. Did you know Soho was a hunting call? Did you know Soho was the centre of the Maltese community? There have been lots of writers here, lots of bohemian types, etc, etc, blah, blah. It all gets a bit samey. Countless listicles written by AI bots about Paul Raymond, Jeffrey Bernard and various gangsters. And then there are millions, terabytes of TikTok videos of people's dinners. Oh my God, guys, next time you're doing Europe, you have to go to this restaurant I discovered in downtown London, England. It's in the Soho district and it's called Lou El Capitano Pan Asian Pizza Fusion Experience. And it is like the best food I have ever eaten, period. Yeah, mate, not bothered. But there's one person who stands out like a sore thumb for not featuring in any of these internet brain farts, and that's Soho-born dancer, actor, singer, and, for a short time at least, worldwide superstar, Jesse Matthews. The world is lyrical because a miracle has brought my lover to me. Now, you'd be forgiven for not knowing immediately who Jessie Matthews was because her heyday in the public spotlight was before the Second World War. The 1930s was the decade in which her star shone the brightest. And it's difficult to understand today, in a world with a completely different media landscape, just how famous she was. And the flip side of that, just how precipitous her fall from favour was when the general public moved on to other stars. Nowadays, there aren't many people who know much about Jessie Matthews, let alone many people who have seen her films. You may just be old enough to remember her second moment in the public spotlight, 
when she starred as Mrs. Dale in the BBC's long-running radio soap opera Mrs. Dale's Diary in the 1960s. But I think it's fair to say that not very many of those thousands of people who stood in long queues waiting to watch Jessie's films and their first release are still with us. I have, however, tracked down writers, academics, film historians, and even some people who knew Jessie in her later years to help tell the story of Soho's very own film legend. And we'll be doing that over the next three episodes. In the second half of the show, I'll be talking to one of those experts, Dr Lawrence Knapper of King's College London, about one of Jessie's films, The Good Companions, from 1933, which was an enormous hit of a film based on an enormous hit of a book. But before that, I'm going to turn to the first of my guests to begin the story of Jessie's life. That's Rob Baker. Rob is an author who's written about Jessie, including a section in one of his books, High Buildings, Low Morals. Squeezing Jessie's long and eventful life into just three short segments in a podcast will necessitate missing out a lot of detail, but I do recommend Rob's book for a very good overview of Jessie's story. I met up with Rob in a location which is extremely significant in the Jessie Matthews story. At the moment, we're upstairs at the Blue Posts pub at the end of Berwick Street, and there's... um a blue plaque outside for Jesse Matthews, and I would say 99% of people outside, if you asked who Jesse Matthews was, probably would have no idea. And yet, in the 1930s, she was probably Britain's most famous film star. In 1935, 1936, there was an article where they asked members of the public who their favourite film star, and she, became, she came above Bing Crosby and Shirley, Shirley Temple and people like that. So she was a huge star in the 1930s. And one of the reasons why there's a blue plaque here, because she was born in Berwick Street. It was a, a street which has always been famous for its market. It's just about surviving, but not really. But in, in her day, it would have been a big thriving market, fruit and veg market and furs and everything. And she was born above a, a butcher's shop at 94 Berwick Street. She was sixth of 16 children. Uh, only about 11 survived, a very, very poor background. She was three. She said herself, it was three or four to a bed, and she lived off bread and scrapes, she put it, dripping, I, I suppose. As she got older, she took up dance lessons, which I think was actually in this room, some of her dance lessons with a French lady, I think, was actually in this room upstairs at the fine Blue Post pub. As I said earlier, we'll be talking to Lawrence Napper later about one of Jesse's films, The Good Companions, but that film is not actually set in Soho, and this is true for all of Jesse's films. However, based on the very lax criteria used to determine what constitutes a Soho film on this show, they all qualify, because if Jesse Matthews is in it, Soho is in it, and that's good enough for us. Back to Rob. They moved out of their flat in uh, Berwick Street quite quickly, uh, the butcher's son needed a place to live and they moved to Camden but soon came back to Soho and uh, lived in a flat in William and Mary Yard which doesn't exist anymore, it's just by Little Pulteney Street and um, it's where Lex um, Car Park is today, just where uh, Great Wimmore Street meets Brewer Street and she went to school there, went to see, uh, there was a very very old cinema there built in an old stable I think I think uh, when she was going there there were still mangers and horse stalls whatever you call them and it was a penny 
penny uh, to go for an hour and watch uh, films there, much cheaper than any other cinema, so the working class kids could go and see the cinema. The poverty of Jessie's early life wasn't helped by her dad, George, who, after a hard day's work on Berwick Street Market, would often, if you'll excuse the Etonian word, spaff his takings directly into the till at the Blue Posts, where he liked to hold court and splash the cash around. He could also be a bit handy with his fists when he came home drunk from the posts, so his wife and kids learned to steer clear of him when he stumbled through the door. The large family was held together by the tireless Jane, Jessie's mother, and some older siblings, most notably her sister Rosie, who we'll hear more about later. They may have slept three or four to a bed and subsisted on a meagre diet, but Mrs Matthews was tough and took pride in her family and in their appearance. In an incident Jessie talks about in her 1974 autobiography, Over My Shoulder, we see an example of just how tough and proud Mrs Matthews could be. Jessie once overheard her primary school teacher, Miss Steele, remarking that Jessie's knickers were dirty and wondered how anybody could send a child to school in that state. By the way, the knickers in question were indeed a bit dirty because, as Jessie admitted later, she'd just spent an hour playing on a playground slide. When Jessie told her mum about Miss Steele's comments, she did not anticipate what would happen the next day. Jessie was in her classroom when there was a knock at the door, and in walked her harassed-looking mother. In her autobiography, Jessie recounts the story thus. It's about Jessie, my mother announced. Miss Steele looked thunderous. Come here, Jessie, my mother called. I hadn't expected this. What misfortune had brought my mild-mannered parent to school? Uncertainly, I crossed to her side... With infinite care, she began to unbutton the back of my gingham dress. She lifted it up and slipped it over my head. Shame and horror overtook me. Is this dirty, miss? my mother demanded. She held the dress out for Miss Steele's inspection. Next over my head came the cotton petticoat. And how about this, miss? The class watched in enthralled silence. I wanted to die very quickly. My liberty bodice was unbuttoned next. A tear ran down my cheek and I hugged my bony chest. Not my knickers, I prayed. Please, Mum, not my knickers. Turn around, Jessie, said my mother. Now bend over. Quite clean, miss, aren't they? Miss Steele cleared her throat, ready for the attack. But my mother was silent, never one to argue in public. She had made her point saved the honour of the Matthews family, and now she dressed me quickly, led me back to my desk, gave my head a pat, and left the classroom. I sat at my desk, weeping bitterly. It was the first time in my life that my mother had let me down, and I knew it was all my own fault. Why hadn't I kept my mouth shut? As I rubbed the tears from my cheeks, I wished desperately that I was miles away from Soho that I lived somewhere where little girls wore white-buttoned shoes and spotless white dresses, and no one would dare to mention the state of their knickers. One kind of hilarious illustration, I guess, is that they were in a really small flat. This is the aforementioned Dr Lawrence Napper. If there's such a thing as a Jesse Matthews superfan, Lawrence is it. And it was above a stable yard, so uh, one of her friends talked about going to tea there and you could smell the, the, the horse piss basically in their living room. 
from the stables below. Yet somehow, from the filth and the stench of Edwardian Soho, from the poverty, neglect and violence, emerged the biggest star of her generation. There are many people who contributed to the rise of Jesse Matthews, many of whom are still well-known names today. There were men in the theatre industry, such as André Charlot and C.B. Cochrane, for example, and in the film world there was Victor Saville and Michael Balkan, but arguably the single most significant influence in Jessie's life, the person who propelled her on her journey towards stardom, was her sister Rosie. Jade Evans is a PhD candidate who is currently writing her PhD on British film stardom between 1920 and 1970. One of her chapters is about Jessie Matthews and she's had access to boxes and boxes of interesting stuff at the BFI National Archive. So she actually displayed an aptitude for performing from a very young age and in her autobiography, Jessie remembers performing in a school play when she was seven years old and when she returned home, her sister Rosie had reported back on the school concert to their mother and told her mother that Jessie was lovely. The headmistress of the school had said that Jessie had more talent than she'd ever seen in a child and she said that Jessie should be trained for the stage. And Rosie really encourages more than anyone else in Jessie's life and she wanted to ensure that Jessie had the support from their parents to attend dancing classes. Rosie also got a job to um, help Jessie get the things that she needed like dancing shoes and she also sewed her clothes and took Jessie to her classes. And so Jessie always spoke very fondly of Rosie and it's evident that, you know, she had a very positive influence in Jessie's life, not just as a child, but also as a supportive figure in adulthood as well. Obviously, she had ambitions for the stage. She, she, she started the dance lessons at the same time. She clearly danced a lot and kind of was totally into it. Dr. Lawrence Napper again. And they had an eye for... I mean, I think they were quite ambitious, I think, her family, because obviously her brother was also got involved in kind of boxing and became, I mean, I think relatively high, you know, he was relatively successful as a boxer. So they, was, they had an eye for, like, moving out of that situation. It's true. Jessie wasn't the only Matthews child to find success in their own field. Three of her sisters, Carrie, Lena and Eve, also had quite successful careers as dancers. And her brother, Billy, to whom Lawrence alluded just now, was at one stage the featherweight boxing champion of England. But it was Jessie who stood out as the most naturally talented sibling. Rosie persuaded their father to pay for two dancing lessons a week with the fearsome Madame Elise Claire, who, impressed by this skinny but graceful girl, gave her extra lessons for free. Rosie would make sure that Jessie did two hours practice each evening in their cramped flat in William and Mary Yard. And after a few months, Jessie, at the age of 12, had her first professional engagement when she appeared as a dancer in Bluebell in Fairyland at the Metropolitan, an enormous and ornate music hall which once stood on Edgware Road. This was quite an event for the Matthews family and also for the market traders of Berwick Street, who together took up a whole row of the cheap seats on Jessie's first matinee. Thanks to Rosie's determination and you might even describe it as brazenness, coupled with Jessie's natural talent and hard work, more chorus jobs and auditions followed. Around this time, we're in the early 1920s at this stage, there were two powerful producers of reviews on the London stage, André Charlot and C.B. Cochrane. For a performer to get a job in one of their shows meant prestige, slightly better pay than average, and a chance to work up to more substantial roles in big, popular shows. At the age of 14, 
Jesse managed to secure an audition for Andre Charlot, which stuck in his memory for many years afterwards. Here's Rob Baker again. As an early teenager, she performed um, in a theatre on the Edgware Road and then at the Kennington Theatre in Pantomime when she was about 14. And then she um, auditioned for Andre Charlot, who, with C.B. Cochrane, was uh, producing all the reviews at the time, which were all the rage. And, and they were sort of shows of song and dance and comedy skits, all based around a loose theme. Seemingly loads in, in theatre land at the time. And um, she went for an audition with uh, André Charlot and uh, made quite a, a scene. And he remembered, he wrote down three decades later, girl after girl had stepped forward, sung and said her little pieces, answered a few questions and stepped back again. And suddenly one of them walked out of the line to the front of the stage, leaned over and said to me, what do you mean by keeping us waiting all this time? I want my lunch. I gasped that I would be so addressed in my own theatre by a mere child, not yet 15, it was beyond belief. Her eyes flashed and she stamped her little feet. What a little spitfire, I said to myself. One of the observations that people often make about Jessie Matthews, especially those who've only recently discovered her, is about her speaking voice. In an era when film actors generally spoke slightly posher than the Queen, she stood out as having the poshest accent of the lot. Do you know what you're going to do now, Mr Inigo Jolliphant? You're going to write another as good, if not better, for me. And listen, one day a big manager from the West End will hear me sing it. He'll send for you, and he'll send for me. We'll both make fortunes, two fortunes. Do you know what I said when I saw you first? That fellow with the absurd knapsack, he may not be a pro, but he's clever. And yet this accent was certainly not the one she grew up with. People raised on the mean streets of Soho did not speak like Noel Coward, who also, incidentally, was not as posh as he liked to portray himself, and Jessie's natural accent was pure Cockney. This would have been fine, de rigueur even for Billy, her boxing brother, and her dancing sisters, Carrie, Lena and Eve, did not need to speak on stage, so it could be as Cockney as they liked. But for Jessie whose ambitions lay in acting as well as dancing and singing, the Cockney had to be replaced with something a little more refined. Elocution lessons were deployed. Here's Lawrence again. Oh, she was proper Cockney. I mean, she was. She came from a Cockney family. She would have had a, quite a strong Cockney accent. Certainly on the stage, you couldn't possibly do anything without speaking posh. But I think probably, I mean, it's a bit my fair lady. You know, it's like if you wanted to sell flowers in a shop and not in the market, you had to speak posh. So, I, you know, the elocution lessons... They're really important for the stage work, but also I think they might also have just been something that they did. They would have done anyway. I have friends who had elocution lessons, you know, elderly friends who had elocution lessons when they were children, and you can't turn it off once you've had it beaten out of you. It's quite difficult to go back. It can be a handicap, of course. <laughs> it doesn't sound posh, it sounds elocuted. It's too perfect. I think voices are something that modern audiences are quite often off-put by in old films, you know, that the, the incredible poshness. But I think it's, it's a convention of the period which you just have to kind of accept and understand or else you're never going to enjoy any of the films. Of the As Lauren suggested there, Jessie's accent was never really convincingly upper class and genuinely posh people always saw through it. And throughout Jessie's life, the feeling that she was an imposter, a low-born interloper mingling with the elite, gnawed away at her and arguably led to some of the self-destructive behaviours and actions that occurred all through her life. She often sought the company of people she perceived to be more sophisticated than her, whilst also feeling slightly intimidated by them. Possibly the first of these was a handsome young man called George Ferrara, whom she met aboard the RMS Aquitania on her way to New York. 
I'll rewind a bit. At the age of 15, nearly 16, Jesse was plucked from the chorus line and chosen by André Charlot to be one of a group of dancers to appear in his new review on Broadway. Despite reservations from the family, Jesse was eventually allowed to go. From the moment she walked up the gangplank to set off on what would turn out to be a more than two-year stint away from home, she found herself in an environment that was strange and overwhelming. There was hot and cold running water in the cabin she shared with an American girl on her way home from finishing school. When she arrived at the Aquitania, despite Rosie's best efforts, Jessie was dressed in what were clearly children's clothes, and she ended up borrowing dresses and some stockings to replace her ankle socks, and she had no idea which knives and forks to use in the Aquitania's sumptuous dining rooms. George was South American, he was the heir to a silver mine fortune and was bewilderingly sophisticated. He took her under his wing, and although he possibly, probably had designs on her, he was also kind and considerate and guided her through this social minefield in which she found herself. As Jessie found her feet in New York and continued to do so on a subsequent North American tour, as she was subject to vicious verbal attacks from her fellow chorus girls who called her a gutter snipe and said she was no better than she ought to be, as she moved from the chorus to understudying main roles to becoming a leading lady at 17, as she transformed from a naive ingenue to a woman who was, on the surface at least, a self-assured star in the making, George Ferrara was ever-present, and Jessie found herself for the first time in love. When her boat docked at Liverpool, after her extended period away from her family, it was obvious to everybody that she had changed beyond all expectations. She was also, she soon came to realise, pregnant. There are two main sources of information about Jessie Matthews' life. There's Jessie's own autobiography from 1974 and an unauthorised biography from around the same time by Michael Thornton. In her own account, Jessie alludes to this pregnancy and the subsequent abortion, which was arranged by George with great efficiency, but Michael Thornton does not mention it. Thornton did, however, raise the subject in an article he wrote for the Daily Mail several years after Jessie's death, in which he claims that George raped Jessie, leading to the unwanted pregnancy. Obviously, we can never know the truth about this, but unless Thornton has undisclosed information to back it up, this seems to be a tenuous claim, especially given the way Jessie spoke about George. I'm not saying he fabricated it, but it does seem tailor-made to appeal to the drooling readers of the Daily Mail. And dead people, of course, can't sue. What we do know, though, is that George's short time in London was not a happy one, and shortly after Jessie's operation, he abruptly left England, and they never saw each other again. Jessie moved out of Soho and in with Rosie and her new husband, also called George, in West London. Still only 18, she was now establishing herself as a West End performer in her own right, having left the bitching chorus line behind. During her long North American tour, she had been understudying for Gertrude Lawrence and had become almost a Gertie tribute act. But under the guidance of André Charlot and others, she was beginning to develop a stage persona all of her own. It was not long after George's sudden departure during rehearsals for Charlot's next review 
that Jessie met the man who would become her first husband. Her earliest impressions of Henry Lytton Jr. were not favourable and she described him as good-looking but irresponsible, arrogant and conceited. Here's Rob Baker again. So in 1926, Jessie Matthews got married and she was only 19 and she married someone called uh, Henry Lytton Jr. who was a debt-ridden womanising loser, basically. He had a famous name only because of his father, who was Henry Lytton Sr., uh, who was a famous um, actor and singer in the Gilbert and Sullivan musicals. Essentially, Jessie came from a really, really poor background and in all her marriages, including the first one, she, she married not, not just the person, but their families, who, who she thought were sophisticated and rich, and it would bring her stability in her life that she didn't have as a child. I think Jessie, although she craved um, what she thought was a more sophisticated world, she, she also um, was frightened of it. And in fact, I think throughout her life, she couldn't she couldn't really come to terms with her background and, and the people she was surrounding herself with. So this marriage was not a happy one right from the outset. And as Jessie's career began to bloom, her husbands stalled. They began to live separate lives and Lytton treated Jessie as a cash cow, funding a lifestyle he could not afford to pay for himself. The marriage eventually collapsed and Jessie, a divorcee at the age of 22, found her personal life in turmoil, while professionally she was going from strength to strength. In the next episode, we'll continue our gallop through the life of Jessie Matthews, picking up from where we left off. She takes on her next major West End role through which she meets the man who will become her second husband and, because he happened to have been somebody else's husband at the time, finds herself caught up in a humiliating public scandal. A scandal that was so public and so disproportionate to the actual facts of the case, it led to her being barred from meeting the King and Queen at the Royal Gala of her 1933 film, The Good Companions. And by spooky coincidence, The Good Companions is the film we're talking about in the second half of the show. And hurry, hurry, hurry to the only one that I adore. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. Good Companions was released in 1933 and was Jesse Matthews' fourth film in a lead role. He was directed by Victor Saville, with whom Jesse would work on several occasions, and produced by Michael Balkan. Balkan was, at this stage, attempting to build a British cinema industry to rival Hollywood. This is before his move to Ealing, and both The Good Companions and Jesse Matthews were two key elements of his strategy. 
The film is a big budget production. It has several huge sets, a large ensemble cast containing some well-known names, although it was also a vehicle and launch pad for Jesse, and was based on the novel, also called The Good Companions, by J.B. Priestley. Although the novel had been published just four years previously, it had already been adapted for the stage due to its huge popularity, and purchasing the film rights was a major financial investment for Michael Balkan. It tells the story of three disparate characters from different parts of the country who come together by fluke and end up joining a touring concert party. There's a bluff, working-class Yorkshireman, is there any other kind, called Jess Oakroyd, played by Edmund Gwen. I'd like to go down south. I'd like to have a look at Bristol. I'd like to see, you know, some of them places. Bedfordshire. From the West Country, we have Miss Elizabeth Trant, played by Mary Glynn, a repressed spinster who has been unlucky in love and has spent the last few years caring for her sick father. I just don't know and I don't care. All I know is I'm, I'm going anywhere. What's more, I'm going tonight. Now. Say not tonight. I can. But where will you sleep? I've never missed a night's sleep yet. It's time I did. And representing the flatlands of eastern England, there's Inigo Jolifant. That's a person's name. Inigo Jolifant, played by John Gielgud, a dissatisfied teacher at a minor public school. <laughs> One of the things I like so much about this concert party is it seems to be such a good crowd, all sticking together. Well, that's yeah. where the fun comes in, really. Isn't it? <laughs> so if being a good trooper means being a good companion, or trying to be a good companion, then I'm jolly proud to be one. Oh, and Max Miller is also in it, but we don't like to talk about that. These three characters, for their own separate reasons, all decide on the same night to leave their current lives behind and set off on a journey into the unknown. None of them has a plan, but through a sequence of unrelated events, they end up together in the fictional Midlands town of Rawsley and become members of... This hopeful little troop of entertainers, the Dinky Doos. Come on, boys and girls. Each of the new arrivals has something to offer the Dinky Doos. Inigo is a talented composer of jaunty, popular songs. Jess is an all-rounder who becomes the group's stage manager, and Miss Trant, who has just come into her inheritance, becomes their manager and financial backer. With these new arrivals and the new injection of talent and much-needed cash, the Dinky Doos are renamed the Good Companions and continue touring the country performing their review show in Down at Heel, End of the Pier Theatres, decked out in their old-fashioned Piero costumes. One member of the group, Susie Dean, played by Jessie, has ambitions beyond provincial touring, and the film follows her progress from the Dinky Doos to West End stardom. When I was young, they told me, in quaint old nursery The Good Companions was immensely successful and confirmed Jessie's transition from major stage star to major film star. She became hugely popular around this time, both in the UK and internationally, and this is despite the major scandal I alluded to earlier. There was a certain amount of sniffy, some might say snobby, criticism of The Good Companions at the time. It was considered by some to be parochial and just not good art. But the general public loved it, and the ringing of tills in box offices up and down the country drowned out the sniping and whinging emanating from the parlours of Bloomsbury. To talk about The Good Companions, I got together with somebody you've heard already on this podcast, the eminent and much respected, it says here, 
cinema scholar Dr. Lawrence Napper, who also happens to be the co-host of my other film podcast, Keynote Quickies. When given a short list of four Jesse films to choose from, Lawrence chose The Good Companions without hesitation. We squeezed ourselves into a booth in the Mediatek in London's BFI South Bank, and I began by asking him about J.B. Priestley's novel upon which the film was based. I knew it was a bestseller, but just how popular was it? It was a massive, 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 How massive, massive was it? Bestseller. I mean, it was like mega, mega. And it, I mean, it made, obviously, Priestley had, had, had written quite a lot before then, but it, it made him a household name overnight, really. It was huge. It was, like, hugely successful. And why, why was it so popular? Well, it's it's good. You know, it's a really good book. But also I think it's, it's, a, it's a book that is about modern England in that moment. So it's a sort of state-of-the-nation novel, and it doesn't hide away from the Depression. So it's, re- it's really about England during the Depression. There's lots of sort of snobbery around the, about the novel. I mean, obviously, you know, modernist critics are like, oh, my God, you know, this terrible book. And they talk about its falseness. But, and I think what they mean is that it is a novel which offers a fantasy of escape set within a contemporary and recognisable England. So basically it opens with three different characters, all of whom for various reasons are trapped or have been trapped in the life that they're leading. There's a guy who's a sort of an industrial worker from Bradford. There's a guy who is a a sort of like undergraduate who is a teacher at a posh school that he doesn't want to be teaching at. And there is a woman who has been looking after her dying father, you know, and is a sort of, I guess, a middle-aged woman who has been caring for her father for so long and has had to deny herself all kinds of, you know, romance and adventure and so forth. And each one of those characters gets up and goes on a journey. And they're like, they literally, they say, well, I'm leaving tonight and I don't know where I'm going. And they all do it at the same time. And they all do it at the same time. So, of course, they all meet up in the centre of England. So it is a, it's, a, it's a fantasy about saying, actually, f*** my life. I'm going to go and find something else. I don't know what it is yet, but I'm going to do it. This is a story of the roads and the wandering players of modern England. The story of how Jess O'Croyd left his home in Bradesford and took to the road, and how Inigo Jolliphant marched out of his school at Washbury Manor, and how Elizabeth, daughter of old Colonel Trent, suddenly went off into the blue, and how chance brought these three to one small town in the Midlands, together with a broken-down troop of entertainers, the dinky dudes. It's easy for people in the UK to forget that that trajectory that America experienced where the 20s is a massive boom and then the Wall Street crash happens and the 30s is a massive depression. That's not quite true for the UK. Mm. Like the UK is having economic problems really from 1919 onwards. There is no boom. No roaring 20s. There's no roaring 20s. Mm. So the economic depression, it, it hits as hard here as it has done in America, of course, but it's on the back of they're already having been pretty grim economic times throughout the 20s. So people are ready to be like, screw this, I'm off. And was this a period of beginning to be a period of increased mobility? Or, I mean, was it was this something this, like just chucking it all away and going somewhere? Was that a thing that was actually well, travel achievable? Is a, yeah, I mean, travel is a thing. So like, you know, the roads network is starting to develop. And in The Good Companions, they go by car, they go on the road. And if you think about it, the roads network has only just developed, like traffic laws came in in 1930. 35, I think. So, like, the idea of the roads network is a new thing. They're only starting to build highways where you can drive fast 
really in the early 1930s. And that's the whole idea about the thing that Priestley talks about in his earlier, in his other book, English Journey, where he sort of talks about the new factories spread out along the new highways on the outskirts of London and all that concern about suburbs and suburbia because the road system is allowing that towns to spread out along the kind of Betjeman land or whatever. land, all yeah. that stuff, yeah. So that idea of travel on the one hand is sort of very modern it's something that's quite exciting but also it's something that is sort of written into some of the politics i think of the depression so you know the jarrow marches that idea of going on a march is about is about moving into a space which doesn't realize that you exist and saying we exist here we are we're from up north and it's not good here i love that conversation in the film when um jess is having a chat with his mate yeah, yeah. I'm going to go down south. Bedfordshire. <laughs> <laughs> Not so yes. much south of Bedfordshire. <laughs> Who was the audience for the book? Across the board, I think. A bestseller of that magnitude. You can't say, oh, you know, it's, it's attractive to 22-year-olds or like little old ladies. It was across the board. And it was across the board in terms of sort of class as well. I think it was like read across classes. There wasn't a bit of snobbery from so Sackville West. Yes, the Sackville. I mean, yes, the Virginia Woolfs and the Sackville West and the QD Leavis is incredibly snooty about it. And there is a sense in which it's like proper literature is not popular, mm. and this is popular, therefore it can't be proper literature. Yeah. And I, I mean, Priestley experienced that throughout his career, I think, because he was genuinely popular. And also, exactly the same as with Jesse Matthews, you know, he's got a northern accent and he's often being accused of being a professional Yorkshireman and of sort of like using that as part of his star image. Therefore, he gets dismissed as being vulgar as a result of that. That, that, that sense of a sort of upstart, mm. you know, somebody who is successful despite being common. Oh, my God. But, and, uh, but, but the thing is, he did put his time in during the First World War, didn't he? He'd, he'd sort Absolutely. of established himself as a yeah, proper yeah. Englishman. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he'd, he'd fought in the war. I mean, he talks in one of his memoirs about, you know, watching the people that he'd grown up with die in the war he, he says something like you know my life is populated by ghosts like all of the people that I was at school with are now dead and like he sort of describes what it feels like to be in that generation really eloquently so how do you compare to someone like George Orwell because he was he was popular yet intellectual wasn't he uh, yes but also George Orwell went to Eton and was posh oh of course yeah. and had all of those connections already and I mean Orwell is very rude about Priestley and indeed denounces Priestley to the to the MI6 in the in the late 40s early 50s as a fellow traveler so oh. Priestley is pretty left wing I mean he's not a fellow traveler but he's He's involved in a in an organisation called Commonwealth during the war. He's the person, of course, during the war who who does the the postscripts where he says, "Let's not go back to the 30s. Like there has to be something better than this. We need to go forward to something better than what we had before." So there's a sense in which he is absolutely championing the idea of the welfare state, and Orwell is not. And the fact that he's both that and popular, I think, is what really gets up the noses of the establishment. It's also around this idea that he is prepared to work in all kinds of mediums. Mm. So he's like is a journalist, he is a novelist, he works on the radio a lot, he does a lot of radio talks, he's also writing screenplays. Similar to Edgar Wallace. He's very similar to Edgar Wallace. So he's absolutely a, he's a you know he's a professional he's a working writer. Mm. Um, and that gets up the noses of highbrow writers like Virginia Woolf well I mean yeah people who think it's an art and therefore it shouldn't be mired by commercial activity I suppose the the thing about the middle brow is this idea about being both quality and commercial 
So you can't just be like, well, obviously, I don't care about a commercial market. I'm going to write my highbrow experimental novel because like, you need to make your money back. Mm. And you can't go for the lowest common denominator because, I mean, on, on some level, Hollywood has already done that, but also because the government is supporting you so you can't just like go into sexploitation films because like this industry is being supported by the government legislation and therefore you have to sort of meet the government's expectations and you also have to meet the audience's expectations. I, mean, I don't think there is much of a market for sexploitation in the 30s. It's a really difficult balance to strike and this does that. So then we have the stage adaptation that comes quite quickly by um, Edward Knobloch. Edward Knobloch. Is that some sort of chastity device? <laughs> <laughs> Edward Knobloch's relatively successful playwright and does quite a lot of those adaptations. And of course, it's not unusual for best-selling books to be adapted to the stage in the same way as it's not unusual nowadays for that to happen. That's one of the things that marks it out as middle brow, of course, which is, and it is deemed to be adaptable. It's like nobody is being like, oh, well, the qualities that are in this novel can't possibly be translated to the stage. No, they're like... Let's make a stage version of this because it'll be tip-top. So then the film, four years after the book? Yeah. And actually, what's, it's quite noticeable that on the posters and the, the title sequence, it's, it says J.B. Priestley, quite big letters above the title. J.B. Priestley's The Good Companion. Yeah. He's, he's the owner of the text. Yeah. The, the opening sequence of the film... From what you said about the book, it sounds to be it's lifted it, from the page, virtually. Yes, it's quite faithful. I mean, the book is sort of, it, it's very, sort of like, the, I think the first sort of section of the book is in three sections, and each section deals with one of the key characters. And you that's sort of what you get in the, in the opening of the film. In the opening of the book, Priestley imagines hovering over the, being able to see the whole of England all at once, hovering over somewhere above the Pennines, he describes. And then he describes in this sort of kind of amazing passage, really, sort of swooping down closer and closer till finally like you're in the crowd of the football match that Jess Oakroyd is seeing. And the film sort of does a version of that. So the film gives you this map with these four locations on it. And there's a narrator, Henry Ainsley, who's a big silent film star. And he basically says, you know, here is England and... In the northern town of Brotherhood, as Jess Oakroyd, and then you kind of dissolve to Jess Oakroyd, who like doffs his hat to the camera and says hello. Yeah, there's all this fourth wall down stuff. Absolutely, isn't it? Stars, fourth wall stuff. It's very self-consciously sort of set up so that you meet the three characters and you meet the dinky doos, and then it goes back again to Jess Oakroyd, and you get this brilliant montage of industrial processes and cotton mills and wool mills. I guess there would be in Bradford, but and and. And then Jess Oakroyd's story kind of starts and then it jumps to the sequence in the school where you get, you know, you, you get another montage showing the school and then you get the uh, John Gielgud story and then it jumps to this kind of bucolic sequence in the West Country of, you know, cows coming home from pasture and so forth and then you get the mistrance story. So it's very schematic in its kind of structure. It's beautifully structured. It's beautiful, yes. This concert party, the Dinky Doos, could you explain this thing about concert parties? Explain how they're presented in the film and is there any way of knowing how closely that related to reality? I mean, I think it does relate pretty closely to reality. We were talking about Jesse Matthews earlier on being in those big West End review shows. And those are, in some sense, a development from Music Hall in that they have no narrative. They are a collection of scenes, sketches, songs... And indeed, the one that she sings 
my heart stood still in one, is called One Damn Thing After Another. <laughs> so those are like big West End, super glamorous, expensive versions of actually what is happening around the country anyway, again, as a sort of like uh, development from Music Hall, which are these sorts of touring variety shows, really. On some level, they're touring variety shows, which are parts of chains of variety theatres. And then on a slightly lower level, I think you'd describe the Dinky Doos as a sort of Piero show. So they specialise in end of the pier, literally, like theatres in piers, like the one in Cromer that survives, but also like seaside resorts. So they are doing a summer season, touring one week in each resort venue with a, a kind of variety show. So if you're the manager of a venue, you might have a review on a whole lot of different acts. Yeah. If you happen to be booking the Dinky Doos, do you think, great, that's the whole evening's entertainment sorted out in one booking? Yeah, basically they bring the whole show. They are a troop of, 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 of figures who bring the entire show. So, I mean, if you think about regional theatre nowadays, you might have a touring version of a West End show one week. You might have a two-hander another week. You might fill it out with like a one-off, one-night sort of stand-up comic who might sell out your Sunday Scouts Jamboree Scouts Jamboree or mm. Daniel O'Donnell and then you'd also have a <laughs> you'd have probably a few days every year for the local amateur dramatic society to put on their show so you've got a variety of things that are that are happening and I think that would have been the same then but of course in those days there were many more working theatres mm. and there's a sense in which of course because of cinema this is starting to break down. So this thing is in the air in theatrical culture, this idea that somehow cinema is a threat, is a rival to these kinds of theatrical shows. Yeah, you do get the sense in the film that the dinky-doos are a bit outdated. Yeah, they're a bit outdated, they're a bit down at heel. Obviously, when we first meet them, their managers run off with the money and they're screwed, and it's only as a result of Miss Trout that they get rescued. And also, there's a bit in the middle of the film where they haven't done that well because the weather is too good. So, like, everybody on holidays at the beach, they're not going into the theatres and they're just desperate for there to be rain. And... Like Miss Trance says, well, I've run out of money. I don't know what we're going to do now. And they they literally say, we're going to have to wait until pantomime then. Priestley has chosen this concert party as a sort of focal point for these people to join. So it, it must have been part of the kind of national consciousness. This, yeah, you know. definitely. It's part of the national consciousness. And of course, it's perfect for his purposes because it means he can gather a range of people from different classes and regions and with different talents together and form them into a team mm. that is going to work towards a common goal. But also that team can move around the country like a kind of non-political version of the Jarrow marches. It's like in the narrative you get to see the whole of the country and there's, there's a sense in which the, both the book and the film are interested in this idea of giving you a portrait of contemporary Britain through this sense of a journey through it that element of it is a precursor to what you get a lot in wartime films which is this idea that different people from different backgrounds can come together for a single goal and obviously in wartime the goal is winning the war so you get a film like Millions Like Us which literally does that with the women working in the factory they all come from different parts some of them are working class some of them are a bit la-di-da but you know they don't get on at the beginning and then they you know they realise that they've got a common purpose and they work towards it and by the end they're a con you know they're a kind of solid unit and the dinky dudes themselves before the three people join them they're a bit of a ragtag group of they've got that weird tenor guy <laughs> and the dancer guy who's Yes, you and know, it, it's sort of like them. there's a sense in which they like if it hadn't been for the three people joining them, they would have remained a ragtag group because the three people join, or the, the 
two of the people joining are the talent. John Gilgood is writing these songs that are making Susie Dean, who's already a member of the group but hasn't become a star yet. They, they transform her into a star. And Mrs. Trant is basically funding the whole... Miss Trant is funding the whole enterprise. So it's only as a result of the injection of new blood that it from all over the country from all over the country so chronologically where does this stand in jesse's film career it's fairly early on isn't it it's pretty early on so uh, she had done a couple of relatively small films with the man from toronto i think predates this which is a sort of like a kind of comedy with ian hunter and she's done, I think she's done Friday the 13th by this time, which is a sort of portmanteau film where lots of people are on a bus and, again, you get each of their different stories. And she's she's the all-night showgirl in that. So she's she's clearly, you know, her star image is established as this sort of showgirl. And then The Good Companions comes. And for Gaumont British generally, The Good Companions is a really big deal. It's a, it's Obviously, they've spent a lot of... It's massively famous property they yeah. spent a lot of money on getting the rights there's a lot of expectation about the film it's one of the most expensive films that they make before they start making those big musicals for matthews so it is a sort of it's a it's a prestige production absolutely a prestige production the letter from vulcan uh, congratulating walter ford on making rome express and he i think in that letter he says you know this and the good companions are going to really solidify us and put us on the map as a kind of you know important film company and it's as a result of the success of The Good Friends and as particularly of, of Jesse Matthews' performance. Because, of course, I mean, the film is like literally chronicles her becoming a star. And then by the end of the film, she is a star. And by the end of the release of the film, Jesse Matthews is a film star. And the next film that they make absolutely is built around her, and that's Evergreen. And there's a line in the film where Gilgood's trying to profess love to her and she's and she's can't be bothered with that because she just wants to be a star yes i want to be a star we have we to that's what we've got to work towards and i think that dynamic between the two is actually really brilliant because he's writing these songs but he doesn't he thinks they're a bit nonsense really and she's the one that recognizes his talent and says you know if i had talent like yours i wouldn't be standing around i would be really going for it and we you know you need to really get some ambition about you because like, otherwise you're not going to make it and of course to her it's important that she makes it because it's a way out of poverty, whereas to him it's sort of slightly less important because the implication is he's already quite posh. This was the film that had this royal gala performance, um, wasn't yes. it? <laughs> Do you know much about that? Yes, I mean, I mean, this is sort of, I guess, an indication of how important Gomer British thought of the film. It was the kind of key production for them in that year. Like all of Gomer's, like Madeleine Carroll, you know, like sold programs that they say that like all of the stars were there sort of like ushering doing and cameos. Like, doing cameos and being there but famously you know because Matthews had been involved in this divorce case she was not allowed to be presented to the king and the queen you know, she, was, she was hauled over the coals by the media and by the kind of vicious kind of gossip column machine but it was also endorsed by the royal family by mm. the most established thing that she was you know, not an appropriate person to know because she had, you know, been involved in an extramarital affair because she had, like, admitted that she liked having sex. The people who framed the cinematographic act must have loved this film. I mean, I think so. I mean, yeah, I, I think... It's what they were aiming for. They, th- they weren't intending to have quota yeah. quotas cookies, were they? No, they were... No, exactly. They weren't intending to end up with quota cookies. What they were intending to end up with was quality films which projected English values at home and abroad. 
And I think this film absolutely is a quality film. It's, it's very expensive. It's like a ludicrous number of sets are used, like because they're in a different place in each scene. You know, huge cast, huge cast. It's really is. You know, it's it's a quality production. It's an ambitious production. It's centrally about England and about contemporary England and what it means to be English. I don't think it's uh, an exaggeration to say it offers a set of ideas about what it is to be a decent person. I mean, there is a problem for British producers in the 30s and indeed throughout because obviously the massive market is Hollywood. Most of the audience in Britain are used to Hollywood films. That's what they watch most of the time. But Hollywood's very difficult to break into but also, partly because of the Cinematograph Act, there is an expectation that you will produce films which represent Britishness, which, which represent the English, which speak to, I guess, not just, you know, film fans who are really only interested in seeing Hollywood films, but also speak to a, a full range of British audiences. And I think that's what this is an attempt to do. And that's really difficult I mean, I think this is a a successful attempt to do that, but it's really hard, I think, for producers because they're constantly being required to compete with Hollywood economically, um, and they just don't have the resources to do Mm. that. One thing that's quite noticeable is that the only time in the film we see glitzy 1930s design, the sort of straight lines and all kind of stuff, is when they go to London Mm. or when Mm. Inigo goes to London. Mm. Up until then, it's all been quite kind mm. of down at heel and but sort of worthy and decent at the same time. There is a sort of weird sense, and it's also in the book, actually, that there's a slight resistance to modern culture. Cinema is not mentioned in the film, but that, that sense of, you know, the modernity of cinema is a threat to the survival of these kinds of theatrical troops. That scene with the with the with the gramophone record player, I think, is also a sort of sense in which these young people with their new careers are a little bit of a threat to the old-fashioned version of the world. But there's also a celebration of those spaces and of those of those old theatrical digs. But you get lots of other designs which are really clearly Alfred Young. So if you remember that sequence where they're all sitting around worrying about how they're going to survive when they hear the rain as a reward for all pooling their money together, it goes up to a, a window that is exactly the same as the window in the courtroom in Evergreen with the beam well, that, coming through. That is, that, that is, you've reached top nerd status there. <laughs> and that's a real evidence of his design. And then there's a brilliant bit where she's singing Gertie from Gerson and the camera moves through the theatre space and picks up the rival producer, the rival theatre owner, sort of standing at the back of the stalls, like watching the show, and he moves, there's this kind of fake wall, and it moves through into the bar area. I mean, I think that's sort of amazing piece of design by Alfred Young in terms of the set design. So clearly a set and not an actual... Clearly a set yeah, and so not expensive. an actual theatre, yeah, but and, and expensive, I think, yes. Mm-hmm. Very, very carefully constructed. When Inigo, John Gilgood, goes to try and sell... Yeah, himself and Jesse. I've seen this happen in quite a few films, actually, where he plays a tune and somebody says, hey, that's a great little tune you're playing. It sounds sounds quite generic now. And there's that guy who comes in, who's like the memory man. Yeah, yeah. Who, <laughs> he's heard every melody that happens to have been made. Um, and he can find out if he's trying to, if you're trying to flog him. Yeah. I mean, I think it's very difficult for us with modern ears 
you'd like what would strike people in those days as being new and exciting and because it's also very difficult for us to reconstruct the musical landscape of that period because obviously there's so much music that's come since and also so much music that's died out so all of those bad victorian parlor ballads and sleep in the deep and all that sort of stuff is no longer really part of our musical culture you don't hear that stuff anymore and that's another thing about her singing style i think because to us it sounds very I'm um, intentionally haven't gone anywhere warbly. near this warbly voice thing. It's a warbly voice thing. And actually that's that's a theatrical singing style. If you think about theatres in that period, you know, there was no microphones in theatre. There are microphones in recording. So you start getting that sense of I'm, I can croon because I'm close to the microphone. Mm. It's like I'm whispering in your ear. That is happening at this moment. But actually, the majority of singing that is happening is being projected from the stage to the gods. So you have to have that quite high-pitched warbliness mm. to actually hear anything. Which you certainly had that. <laughs> the way I feel about Jessie Matthews in general is I like her story more than her performances. Oh, my God. Um, Have I, you got no heart? I, no, I like... I mean, I, I don't dislike her performances. There's a jarringness. When she's being... When you first see her in Good Companions... Is it when you first see her? I'm not sure. But anyway, she kind and of... She, she says, Hi, what about me? Yeah, Susie yeah, Dean? Yeah, she introduces Start herself. today, and, tomorrow. Yeah. And you think, oh... You, when, I was, <laughs> when I was kind of 16, 17, all my friends were going off to drama school, you know, and lots of them were a bit like that. Like there's a scene where she is concocting a plan to get Miss Trans- Medical Register in yeah. the public library. And she's in the library. And that is all quite kind of natural and yeah. she engages with the librarian. Uh, but sometimes her, her interactions are so kind of mannered. It, it takes you out of it a bit. It's a bit jarring, you know. Yeah. And I wonder how audiences at the time I mean, I suppose you kind of inured to that to that level of kind of slightly quirky posh person acting it's not that you're inured to it it's that you know the method hasn't happened yet and i think somebody from that mm. period would see a marlon brando performance or a modern performance and think that was really mannered yeah for for different stop reasons. mumbling yeah all that stuff yeah yeah. yeah yeah that's true of a lot of old films yeah i get that from students all the time like you show them brief encounter and they're like oh my god i couldn't get into it because she's so posh and he's like well there's a lot else going on in this film but the, her posh accent was like what stopped you from engaging in it yeah that's ridiculous anybody who doesn't like brief encounter <laughs> is an idiot um given its relatively high budget and resources and all that kind of stuff there's a scene where inigo and the banjo player whose name i can't remember morton mitchum morton mitchum are walking towards a camera down a country road. Uh, yeah. Clearly, it's really it's bad, really bad, bad, projection. bad projection. And every other scene seems to be just shot in the countryside. Yeah. Why do you think that, what, what, what would be your I best guess for that? I don't know why that is. I mean, because there is a scene where Jess Oakroyd is walking down the road with his wicker suitcase, and I don't think that is back projected. No, because, that's just normal. Because there, you then get the scene with him meeting Miss Trant, and that's all in the real thing. I mean, I presume that's a, they realised they needed that seen late and they you know they just didn't have time to maybe do it bad in weather or something or, um, could have been bad weather it could have, there could be any number of reasons why that had to sort of lets it down out. in a way it's, <laughs> it's so obvious well you know it um, has a charm yeah it does have a charm yeah and towards the end try, i would try to be too spoilery but there's kind of a riot in the cinema at the end yeah 
as we probably established, that was a set, not an actual theatre, because they, they probably wreck it the spraying water. All I know, it's amazing, isn't it? And, yeah. you, and you just sort of think, like, if, if, if the fire the fire engines would be called in a normal theatre like they sprayed it with a, they wouldn't let you back in the building you wouldn't be able to come back and no like, we want Susie <laughs> it wouldn't be happening no <laughs> and it's great that the fire brigade are actually just spraying the, the, the rioters <laughs> yes they're just like hosing down the rioters it's really good um, so you chose this film for, out of a list of I think we got it down to four or five yeah. given the whole breadth of Jesse's output is this the one you would have chosen or was it only because the who was down to those that shortlist? No, no. This is the one I would have chosen. I mean, you know, like I like this. I wrote a PhD on this. Well, I didn't write a PhD on this film, but uh, it, this was one of four key, key case studies that I chose. So it's it available in all good bookshops. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I love this film, and it's interesting because it is in that transitional moment between the early films and between the the cycle of big exportable mu- musicals. So I think that is why I'm interested in it, and also. I mean, it is a Jesse Matthews vehicle, but it isn't just built around her. You know, John Gielgud is, is not an inconsiderable theatre star at this point. Obviously, Max Miller rocks up for a very short Got moment. Got to mention Max Miller. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, uh, you know, and there's also, um, you know, um, Edmund Gwen and, and Mary Glynn. It's, a, it's an ensemble piece. Yeah, a li- little bit like uh, Friday the 13th. Well, that's much yeah. more self-consciously a, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. an ensemble piece. Have we done anything you want to say about the film before? I don't think you, uh, there's anything else. I... Um, do you want to sing any of the songs? I mean, I can the... sing all of the songs in the Maybe. film if you'd like. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not. Oh, thank God, listeners, I pressed stop before Lauren started singing Let Me Give My Happiness To You. Keep your happiness to yourself, Napper. There have been several versions of Good Companions over the years, and you may be able to hunt some of them down. There's the book, of course, and as well as the original stage adaptation, there was a second one in 1974 with a very starry cast. There was a second film version made in 1957 which starred the blessed Celia Johnson as Miss Trant, and there have been various TV and radio adaptations over the years, one of which features music by friend of the show Neil Brand. But despite the calibre of all of these versions, we of course recommend the 1933 original film version starring Jesse Matthews. Many thanks to Lawrence for coming back on Soho Bites to talk about The Good Companions and about Jesse Matthews. He might also crop up in the next two episodes along with my other two guests, Rob Baker and Jade Evans. Many thanks to both of them for coming on the show. And huge thanks to Jane Slavin for reading the passage from Jesse's book about her dirty knickers. I'm also contractually obliged to mention Jane's loveliness. You'll find links to information about all of my guests in the show notes for this episode at SohoBitesPodcast.com. In the next instalment of this three-part Jesse Matthews special, Jesse's film career takes off in earnest, and for the next decade she is an unassailable megastar, but things in her private life begin to fall apart. We'll also be talking to another special guest about another film from the Jesse Matthews back catalogue. Please consider subscribing to the show if you haven't done so already. You can do that through one of the many podcast apps listed at SohoBitesPodcast.com. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can do that on Twitter or X, whenever. The handle is at ByteSoho or by email on SohoBytesPodcast at gmail.com. And please consider supporting the show, either by way of a kind review at SohoBytesPodcast.com forward slash review or by contributing a measly amount of money to help cover our costs at SohoBytesPodcast.com forward slash donate. 
Soho Bites is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jing and Young. I'll see you in a few weeks, and bye for now. Listener.